Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, your host for Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week on the show, we're going to ask a really cool question, and it is, what can we learn from the plant kingdom? Are there parallels in their ways of living and our own as humans? And to explore this topic, we have on the line Dr. Baranda Montgomery. She is a writer, professor, and science communicator, and her research focuses on how organisms, and especially plants, maintain a sense of self a sense of where they are, and what behaviors they should pursue to support their success. Dr. Montgomery is a professor of biochemistry and molecular biology and microbiology and molecular genetics at Michigan State University. She's a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science and the American Academy of Microbiology. She also studies these topics in the context of innovative mentoring and leading to support success among humans. And I'm really excited to have her on the show because she has a brand new book. It's called Lessons from Plants, just out this year. And I really look forward to learning more about these topics. So great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Yeah. So why don't we just start with a little bit about what, what motivated you to write this book? So I have been engaging kind of lessons from plants for some time in communication with uh, family and friends outside of academia, um, as well as in spaces where I really felt a need to have difficult conversations, uh, conversations about cultural change or mm -hmm. um, equity. And a lot of those conversations, when we talk about them from the human perspective, meets defensiveness. Um, we're a little bit afraid we're about to be called on the carpet. And so I found using biological inspirations a great way to move into those conversations, but also Lessons from Plants has served as a really great way to invite my family members and friends into my obsession with plants beyond the amino acids and other things that I'm really interested in, but to invite them into it as well. That's great. Well, um, one thing that's, that's long fascinating me is this idea that Although they're sessile creatures, plants have a very good sense of, of what's happening in their world. How do plants sense their surroundings? So plants are indeed very aware, and they have a number of mechanisms for sensing that. Some of them are using proteins that um, when they're exposed to light or nutrients, there's a change in the protein basically going from an off state to an on state and starting a communication cascade. Um, they're also able to um, detect whether they're with others by chemical cues that they produce and that other beings in their environment produce. So it's kind of a language. The chemical mm -hmm. cues are words or language, if you will, and they're able to detect that much like we pick up words. So there are lots of different ways that they're able to have a sense of where they are relative to kind of inanimate objects like light mm -hmm. and nutrients, but also communication with other living organisms that really give them a sense of where they are in time and space. That's great. And so when we talk about plant communication, are we restricting this to communication within the same species or is there communication with other organisms or even other kingdoms of life in their environments? Absolutely. So plants do talk amongst themselves. They talk with the same species. They talk with other species of plants, but they also are able to communicate with other species. And so one common one that some people may be aware of, particularly farmers, are they can communicate with bacteria. So mm -hmm. some plants that are able to fix nitrogen like legumes have communication with bacteria that ultimately end up living in their roots and then sharing kind of the production of nitrogen. That's great. Yes. 
And so in your book, you kind of explore these, these social relationships and behaviors of plants. How, how does this, how does this tie into human behavior? Well, I think that biological organisms have lots of commonalities and parallels in their behavior. And I think often we as humans have this kind of sense that we're so much different from other Mm -hmm. organisms that are on the planet. But there are lots of parallels in terms of living in community, uh, competing or collaborating. So many things that we do as humans, other biological organisms do. And, you know, many people I've learned from them, some of those organisms have been on the planet much longer than us. So we have a lot of lessons to learn from them about how those behaviors that we share have served them well over time in terms of persistence and longevity. Mm. And how does this all tie into, like when we think about life cycles, what what can you share around life cycles of plants and and the parallels in humans? I think we just aired an episode today on, um, you know, indigenous perspectives of life cycles and transformation into forest creatures in, in the, in, within that culture. And, I, and I'm curious, like how, how humans observe plants and how, how that influences our understanding of our own life cycles. Well, it's interesting when you say that, because um, as I was writing the book and also some of the conversations I've had, it's become pretty clear to me that humans don't think about plants as having generational, multi-generational life cycles. Mm -hmm. Um, They grow a plant if they are vegetable farmers, you know, they grow it, they eat the vegetable and compost the rest and really don't think about those seeds if they're saved, are the next generation. And so I think that, you know, plants have a life cycle, much like we do as individuals where we're born, they germinate, we go through development and maturation, ultimately toward old age. Plants have old age and senescence as well. But there is a multi-generational nature to plant Mm -hmm. life cycle that I think we as humans don't have enough knowledge about. Um, And there's some really interesting conversations going on about how um, traits are passed on across those, how memories passed on, how ecological um, memories are passed on. So I think there's a lot to learn about looking at just how the individual plant has a life cycle that's attuned by its environment, but also this multi-generational nature and migration and all of those things that plants go yeah. through that we do as well. Yeah. I mean, that really speaks to resilience of the population, right? Yes. So, yes. yeah. Um and I'm thinking even in like a home garden and you talk about gardening in your book mm-hmm. as well. What are, what are some lessons that just the average gardener could, could learn through observing things happening in their garden? Well, it's interesting. I, I grew up with gardens all around me, flower gardens and vegetable gardens, and wasn't that tuned in, although my mother was. Um, <laughs> and I think a lot of times we kind of go through the Uh, just wrote things that we know we should do with plants, but there's so much to learn, you know, in terms of, I think about how um, a lot of people have just started their vegetable gardens here in Michigan. It's just now time to start that. Mm -hmm. And for those of us who plant seeds directly in the soil, we'll go through this period where we'll cull some of them so that they're not too crowded or move them around. Mm -hmm. And those are really important lessons about plants needing to have sufficient access to resources. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think there are so many things just in the day-to-day of vegetable gardening that if we stop and think why we're doing that, there's so many lessons for us to learn. Um, Looking at what things grow well together is telling Mm -hmm. us something about how plants are communicating to each other and see each other either as innocuous or helpful. Um, 
And so a lot of times I myself try to do what I call mindful gardening, where I'm really thinking about, okay, I'm about to take this step and water the plants today. Why am I watering them today as opposed to yesterday? You know, mm -hmm. what do I know about how much water they need? Just earlier today, I was talking to someone who had been overwatering their plants. And I said, you know, you're loving them too much. I'm guilty. I'm guilty of that. <laughs> you're giving them too much love. <laughs> And so I think so many times we just kind of go through this, I need to do this every day, as opposed to really stopping and observing and learning from what the plants are telling us through their behavior and their growth. You know, their feedback is through behavior and growth. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's learning how to read those signs, um, <laughs> which I'm still learning, especially with houseplants, that my outdoor plants in my garden do much better. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think houseplants, we have a tendency to, take such good care of them that their natural innate abilities to build up resilience and, and um, you know, kind of goes away. And that's why some of, you know, there are lots of these memes online about a plant can do anything outside and it comes inside and it's just, you know, wow. so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I, I also love this idea of companion planning. So, you can companion plant across across botanical families to improve their resilience to pests um, in certain garden beds, right? And kind of they they tend to thrive together. And how does how does that work with humans? I mean, do you think that it has to do with we, you know, are social creatures and and really thrive in 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 certain like companion relationships? Yeah, I think, you know, I think about that a lot in terms of too frequently what we do in human communities is have the same expectations for each of us. So if there are five of us who happen to be uh, teachers, we expect all of us to do exactly the same thing. Um, whereas what I think companion gardening teaches us is that we might each have a particular skill or gift that when brought together gives us everything we need in community. So I think a lot about companion garden as, as a real call for us to think about, okay, we're in this community together and we have a certain set of things that we need to accomplish, but what if you're really good at one of them and I'm good at the other? Why should we both have to spend half our time doing those two things as opposed to let you do the one that really aligns with what you have to offer? So mm -hmm. I think companion gardening teaches me a lot about the importance of diversity, but also not just diversity for diversity's sake, but diversity in terms of we each have different passion, skills, and gifts, and how do we really align those around a core set of needs as opposed mm -hmm. to we usually presume there's 12 pieces of the pie, let's cut it up into, and we each do a 12th, right, of mm -hmm. all these 12 different things. Well, that's not a good, that's not a good way, I think, sometimes to go about it, because people then end up doing work that doesn't feed their motivations, they're depleted, you don't yeah. get their best work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm wondering if we could also expand on this topic also of diversity and in, in, in the plant world, biodiversity is essential, yes. right, to our food security, to our, um, you know, the health of our ecosystems, but also within, within human lives, diversity is incredibly important. If we're all exactly the same, life yes. is very dull indeed, right? Yes. So yes. Um, what are some of the things that you, that you, how do you draw those parallels with your students? I know on, on the topics of diversity. Well, part of it is trying to understand that um, 
as you say, there are other examples in our ecosystem, in our universe that show us the real power of diversity. Mm -hmm. And too frequently, as we do with so many other things, as humans, we often separate ourselves from what we know to be true in the biological ecosystem or our universe. And so a lot of times I like to just start with examples that we accept that demonstrate the importance of diversity in other places and to ask why have we given ourselves an opt out of the fact that that would be true for our human society as well. And then I do think that, you know, there are increasing examples in business and other places of the power of diversity, which I think are good examples. Um, but I also think that when we draw on biological examples, it can get us away from looking at diversity as good for the bottom line in a kind of monetary or production mm -hmm. sense but as a good principle for the eco ecosystem. And if it's a good principle for the rest of the ecosystem, there's likely good um, evidence that it's good for us. So I do think there are lots of examples to draw on in that regard, whether it's different species growing together um, or different species having different um, success at different times in an ecosystem and looking yeah. at all of those as how we can draw on those examples for ourselves and in, in human community. That's great. Well, I know that you're really passionate about mentoring, and I wonder if you could expand on some some of the techniques that you use as a mentor in inspiring the next generation of botanists and people that study the the nature of nature. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I got really interested in mentoring when I started as a professor myself because um, I had had very different mentors at different stages of my careers. And for all practical purposes, they were very diabolically different types of mentoring, but we had success in terms of my finishing what I was supposed to finish, producing the kinds of products and moving to the next level. So in some ways that was good because uh, for many of us, if we've been mentored the same way throughout our career, career we assume that's the way you should mentor. Mm -hmm. And because I had had these very different ways of being mentored that led to success, I started to think, well, which of those is the way I should mentor now that I'm in charge? And I did what we would do if we're doing a new science experiment. I went to the literature to say, what kind of evidence is there about good mentoring practices? And as I was reading through that, I started to uh, encounter growth-based mentoring versus deficit-based mentoring. And as I was reading that, it really resonated with what I know about plants, that plants uh -huh. have success depending on what's going on in the environment. Yes, they have a genetic code, right, which determines mm -hmm. what type of plant they are and what they're capable of doing, but all of those capabilities come to fullness in a particular environment. And so I really started to ask questions about how, for me, mentoring was about understanding which individuals showed up but how I tend the environment so that their fullness can come to fruition. And so I really found mentoring to be the difference. I had seen many people come in with, on paper, very similar histories and have different levels of success. And in many cases, that was because they had been connected to a great mentoring network. So I really started to ask questions about what our role is, not just to get students or people we're mentoring to produce, but how we're seeing their potential and tending the environment, showing stewardship over the environment to help promote them moving towards success. And so that's how I started moving into mentoring and realized that in many cases, we don't talk about mentoring philosophies um, in yeah. the sciences. Most of us have not had formal training. And so I really felt that that was a space where trying to stimulate more conversations about that would be a major benefit. And as a plant scientist, I thought, Understanding this kind of interaction between organisms and the environment, plant scientists should be some of the best mentors because we yeah. understand that about plants. 
And seeing that we were struggling like everyone else, I said, well, let's start with the knowledge we have and ask how can we apply that to supporting those people who we have the privilege and responsibility to help support. That's great. I, I think I really resonate with this idea of, of tending your environment. And we would call this, you know, in, in the academic circle, you know, maintain a good lab culture. Yes. Um, right. A supportive environment. Um, but it's true. We're not often taught amazingly, you know, how to be great teachers. <laughs> I, I never got like a really great exactly. like pedagogy course in graduate school um, or exactly how to mentor. And we base it off of our own learned experiences, which, you know, aren't always the best examples to follow, mm -hmm. as you said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so do you have any tips on like with using this kind of growth model of mentoring? Um, do you have any specifics that you could offer for any of the other um, academic mentors out in the audience that they could implement in their own practice? Well, I think something that was transformative for me was the first time someone as a mentor asked me what my definition of success was. Oh. Um, they didn't assume what success was. They said, you've chosen this particular, you know, uh, opportunity. What would success look like for you in this opportunity? And that was transformative because I was able to say to them that success for me has always felt like being able to grow in knowledge and take it back to a community. And we don't measure that through citations per se, but they were able to say to me, okay, that's awesome. Now, given that these are the expectations, how do we get you to where you want to be and you meet the expectations. And so I think a lot of times having that first conversation with people, why did you choose this path? What are your goals? What are your aspirations? And then trying to help them understand how to achieve those in context. And so, mm -hmm. yes, if you've accepted a job as a professor on the tenure track, that you have some expectations, but those don't have to completely pull you away from your own personal goals and aspirations for deciding to go down that path. And I think too frequently we jump straight into mentoring as mentors without ever, ever asking the person, why did you choose this path? Where do you mm -hmm. hope this path is going to take you? And what does success look like for you? And then let's have a conversation about how that aligns with the expectations for this particular position. So I always try to do that. Um, and there are times where the persons, when they answer that question, success looks like something that I don't particularly know myself. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, that's where having an understanding that mentoring happens as a collective and as a network. And I can say to them, well, if your goal is to be um, in science policy, we can do all the work here with while you're with me and connect you to additional opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so I think frequently, you, you know, having that sense of what they are there for, what their goals are, their aspirations, and what success looks like for them allows you to really work together collaboratively towards a successful outcome, um, and as opposed to what we often do is assume that people want to do what we've done. And I am wildly happy with mm -hmm. my life, but that's yeah. my decision, right? Yeah, and yeah. so what I need people <laughs> to do is to find the thing that would make them equally happy as I am, mm -hmm. not assume that doing what I do have done would make them that happy. Great. Yeah. You know, we, um, we use um, individual development planning yes. as a tool and it is, it is great because I think, as you said, a lot of times students don't necessarily know what they really want to do because we kind of look to those examples ahead of us yeah. um, and we're yeah. offered these general, well, academia or industry, but there's more than that. There's so much Absolutely. more. You know? Absolutely. And we need people to do so much more. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Well, um, one thing that you, you just 
touched on as well is this concept of collaboration and collaboration within systems. I mean, collaboration among plants is really important. Yes. What are the things that, what are the lessons you've learned about collaboration from plants and how do you apply those in your, in your work? Well, I think part of it um, is even the the process by which plants decide, you know, in terms of a kind of molecular decision as to whether it's the right time to collaborate and whom to collaborate with. And often what they're doing are weighing the risk of whether responding to a particular need in the environment is so costly that it would be beneficial to share that. Um, and or whether the collaboration is going to expand their access to resources. So when mm -hmm. plants collaborate with fungi and mycorrhizae or they collaborate with bacteria in terms of um, nitrogen fixing bacteria, that is expanding them having access to resources, uh, nutrients, nitrogen, phosphate, or water that they wouldn't otherwise have that equal access to. So the cost which is they pay in sugars, the cost then is worth what you're getting back in, 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 in a response. And so I think that thinking about collaboration as expanding what you have access to, which expands the possibilities of what you can do, are really important questions to ask. And I think a lot of times, for me at least, um, in my training, collaboration was often, the question was, am I going to get something out of this? Am I going to get a grant funded because I collaborate with this person? Or am I likely to get more papers? As opposed to really focusing on, okay, what's the reciprocity here? What am mm -hmm. I gifting to the, the relationship? And what am I getting back? And making sure that you're paying attention to both of those, because that's what su sustains a collaboration. And that's what gets the maximal output for the collaboration. So I think looking at all parts of how plants decide to initiate a collaboration, how it's established, when it's time to maybe dampen that relationship mm -hmm. because the cost has now uh, become too high. And I think we particularly struggle with that as humans. You know, I talk a lot yeah. in mentoring about how do you end a mentoring relationship, but I think also deciding when a collaboration is no longer serving its purpose, we often prize, well, I don't want to hurt this person's feelings, as yeah. opposed to saying, for both of us, this collaboration is no longer serving us the way it, it did at the same point, you know, prior. I appreciate everything that you've given to it. I hope you appreciate everything that I've given to it, but now it's not time. We need to temper it. And I think looking at that whole range of a collaboration lifespan, if you would, from plants has really taught me to be more thoughtful and intentional um, about collaborations that I initiate and sustain in my own personal kind of sphere. Yeah, when it comes to collaboration, I've I've been fortunate to have some really amazing long-term collaborations and some not so great collaborations. And um, I recently took part in a faculty development, um, faculty success program. And you know, the people in my cohort were all women um, who have struggled with collaborators. Um, oftentimes, the there's not as much reciprocity for some of us. Maybe that's why we're in a boot camp to try and improve things. <laughs> Is like, how do you how do you reinforce this idea of reciprocity and not just get burdened with the heavy weight of of the full project, which I think often happens sometimes. Well, often and sometimes, I guess it depends on it depends on the barriers and the boundaries that you set. So, what what types of advice can we learn from plants about that? About how do you how do you, you know, without cutting and running and just completely turning the collaboration off, um, are there ways to optimize 
collaborations? Yeah, so I think, you know, there are a number of things I think about. And I, I think one of the, the ways that I think about collaboration is that too frequently in scientific collaborations, once we decide to work with someone, we think that that's, it's like a marriage. Mm -hmm. Whereas pan plants, in my estimation, this is probably a horrible analogy, but plants look at collaboration more as a dating or long-term dating situation. And as long as it's going well and they're both getting what they need, the collaboration goes on. But at some point, um, uh, I think a lot about mycorrhizae. Um, mm -hmm. If it becomes too much of a cost burden for the plants, they will actually limit those exchanges with the, with the fungi, the fungal partner, and sometimes they won't, won't initiate any new ones. So in terms of plants, there's a kind of constant awareness of how the collaboration is going and a check-in on both okay. sides. And mm -hmm. I think too frequently we establish a collaboration and we think, well, I got myself in this collaboration. I can't get out of it. And part of that, um, I think, is the ways in which we make decisions about, about collaborations. We usually do a kind of outcome analysis. And if we think we're going to get a big grant or great papers, we'll collaborate with the person. Whereas for me, I have to ask multiple questions. The question is, are we likely to make scientific advancements? That's the point of it. Do mm -hmm. we have similar mentoring styles? Because if we don't have uh, complementary, they don't have to be the same, but complementary mentoring styles or mentoring styles that we can respect from each other, that's going to become a problem in terms of working with the people. Um, also, do we have similar values, scientific values? Yeah. And part of my values are that if I'm working on something, myself and all the members of my team are clear about how it's going to benefit us. It's not in the end that I'm the only one as the PI mm -hmm. being benefited. So I think sometimes we don't do enough assessment up front before we get into mm -hmm. a collaboration. And then the real lessons I've learned from plants is that we don't do this kind of ongoing assessment as whether it's still working and have ways to get out of it without feeling like we're detonating a bomb <laughs> and completely blowing everything up. So, yeah. 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 No, that's, that's a really great point. Um, this, this concept of, of, of more frequent monitoring. And I think also, again, reassessing what's in it for every member of the partnership yes. or the collaboration. And that's a great thing. I, I think to also teach our students um, yes. as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so beyond your, your, actually, I would like to touch a little bit on your, on your actual research on, on mycorrhizae and, and what can you share us about kind of the hot topics that you're working on right now? Yeah, so in my lab, we primarily study light and nutrient responses in plants, and that can be everything from how the plant uh, recognizes how many hours of day it has, so it knows whether it's summer versus winter, and assesses that relative to how many nutrients it has, um, so that it mm -hmm. can decide, um, really make the de molecular decisions about seed set and, and flowering and those kinds of things. So we don't directly study kind of bacteria or mycorrhizae, but they're impacted because some of those particular relationships are actually driven by the, uh, the upper part of the plant being able to respond to light. So some of the photoreceptors that we study impact a, a number of responses, including root responses, and we study the whole range of that. Um, we also know that the photoreceptors we, uh, that we study help plants in terms of kin communi kin uh, uh, communication. And so mm -hmm. um, if plants are related to each other, they won't compete as head-to-head uh, -head as much for light when they're getting crowded. Mm -hmm. And that's determined by the photoreceptors giving them a sense of the light environment. And I'm very interested in how plants understand that they are in a community with kin or not and how that tempers how much they will compete and promotes how much they will collaborate because they recognize that 
if their kin survives, that's as well as if they survive in some ways. Mm -hmm. And I'm really interested in how we as humans set up these kind of artificial, sometimes descriptions of who kin are and who we will exclude as kin or who we will accept as kin based upon a whole number of factors um, and how that relates to what happens in context with plant communities and other biological organisms. Yeah. Well, and one of the ways that if, if I'm, if I'm understanding this, this correctly, one of the ways that um, signaling can occur between Ken is through release of these volatile organic compounds, yes. VOCs. What can you mm -hmm. share with us about that? What are VOCs and how, how do they serve as signals? Yeah, so volatile organic compounds are um, a molecule that are produced by plants, and we're aware of some of them. So, if, you know, if you've ever been uh, noticed the smell of a tomato plant, um, mm -hmm. you know, if you crush the leaf, those are volatile organic compounds. And volatile organic compounds serve as a language in many different capacities. Um, one of which is to communicate with other plants. And so if a plant is producing the same mix of volatile organic compounds as you are, you're likely to be related because over evolution, plants, different species have evolved to produce a different kind of complement of these volatile organic compounds. And plants are also able to detect when it's close. So you might mm -hmm. be not as distantly related versus something that they don't recognize at all. And so those compounds are often used to signal danger. So if one plant has been damaged, it will produce that volatile organic compound and a nearby relative can pick it up and have a sense that, for example, herbivores are in the area. And so it really can serve as a warning. It can also serve to kind of time activities together. It seems there's mm -hmm. some evidence in nature that volatile organic compounds might cause all species to flower at the same time, which promotes pollination wow. and those mm -hmm. kinds of things. So these volatile organic compounds are really powerful um, in terms of giving you a sense of who's in community with you and whether that's something you should ignore be prepared to compete against or to collaborate based upon that. So it really is a language, uh, much like if, you know, I'm born in an English speaking country, I might recognize, um, I'm from Arkansas, I can recognize the Southern accent of my relatives, mm -hmm. right? Relative to someone <laughs> else. And so it really is a very, a distinct language of sorts that gives yeah. plants a, a sense of those kinds of things about the environment. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I think also about, you know, how these signals change. So for example, if I go out into my front yard and I'm walking around the lawn, there'll be a certain odor to the outdoors or to the grass. Mm -hmm. But when I, when I take out my lawnmower and start cutting it, it's like, you know, I, I always think of like, are the grass blades screaming right yes. now in pain? <laughs> like, Cause they're releasing that, you know, that, yes. that lovely smell of a fresh cut lawn is yes. like, their anguished cry for help. <laughs> We're being attacked. <laughs> Yeah, surrounded by plant language. <laughs> Just we don't always know how to again how to how to interpret those languages. That's right. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, well, speaking of pollinators, that that's another a, another really interesting way that plants use signals. Um, what can you tell us about? I always tell my students, for example, you know, we talk about um you know, the Titan Arum versus a rose, like what, what does a rose smell like a rose and the Titan Arum smell like a big, like rotting corpse. Yeah. <laughs> like, why, why is that? Why did plants smell so differently when it comes to like their flowering? Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting. Cause I was talking to someone about that. She's like, plants smell so beautiful, many of them. And I was like, it's not for you. They're communicating to other organisms. Well, yeah. So plants really have um, co-evolved 
uh, with their po pollinators in a lot of cases. And so the pollinators, some pollinators are generalists and, you know, will go to many different plants, but many plants have very specific relationships with specific pollinators. And one of the ways that that relationship is established, there are several ways. Sometimes mm -hmm. they're, uh, uh, the, the color cues of plants um, combined with these volatile organic compounds, which can serve as attractants um, mm -hmm. to where a specific pollinator's plant is found in a particular ecosystem. And so often those distinctions in that we're smelling are also very good distinctions for the pollinators to say that over in that part of the ecosystem. And even that kind of rotting smell that some plants have smells wonderful to their pollinator, right? They're like, that's yeah. my plant. I know it distinctly. <laughs> um, and so I think that, you know, it's interesting because often, as you say, we encounter these smells and a, a rose that we love or fresh cut grass. Mm -hmm. But those are really potent cues that have served over evolutionary history to keep plants together with their pollinators, which are critical for the plant to have its, um, you know, seed set and next life cycle. So, yeah. That's great. Well, as we as we get closer to wrapping up, I wanted to ask um, also from all the time that you spend working with plants and gardening, um, are there any kind of fun tips you have for gardening and are there any kind of garden plants that you really like to transform in the kitchen with uh, special recipes? Oh, that's neat. Yeah. So I, you know, I think the most, the, the tips I have about gardening are um, to explore. Too many of us plant the same plants every year because we know we have success with them and we can get them to grow. I could predict every year that my late father was going to plant okra and tomatoes and, you know, you know, mustard greens or whatever. And one of the things that I love to do every year is just to get a couple of plants that I haven't grown before and to experiment because undoubtedly I learned something new about trying to cultivate a new plant um, or come to appreciate a new flower or a new vegetable. Mm -hmm. And so I really think that um, vegetable gardening is a great way to explore. Um, I think about all the people who got pandemic pets and some of them are going back to, you know, to the pound now. So the thing sad. about vegetable gardening is you, <laughs> you try to grow the plant. If it works out, you learn something new. If it doesn't, it's one cycle of commitment. So I think that there's yeah. a lot of, you know, we don't often don't, um, I think, experiment enough with the range of plants um, that we could. Um, in terms of, um, I do have one recipe I love to cook and my son loves to cook. Um, and we use a lot of our homegrown herbs in it. And so we have this, um, my son went through this period recently where he was vegetarian. So I had to come up with all kinds of great recipes because I thought, I don't know why he's vegetarian, but as a 16 year old, there are much worse things I could have to deal with. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so we came up with this, we um, got a recipe from a friend um, from Antigua and we always make them our own, but it's a uh, walnut based meatless meatball. And it has lots of fresh herbs in it. So we grow a lot of the fresh herbs ourselves so that we can chop them and, you know, have all those fresh smells. And then it has a mushroom and vegetable gravy um, that you cover those with. And that's really fun because it's a little different each time, depending on which herbs we have growing well in our garden. But it's a lot of fun to just say, go pick some herbs and we're going to see what we come up with. So. That's amazing. Yeah. So yeah. you just you just puree the 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 walnuts with the you herbs. You puree or? the walnuts, mm -hmm. um, and it goes in with some breadcrumbs. We usually like to make our mm -hmm. own herb bread, and then 
you know, chop up some parsley, cilantros, or other kind of herbaceous mm -hmm. greens that you have. Um, it uses onions. We usually grow some onions as well. So we try to grow as much of it as we can because we appreciate it a little bit more once yeah. we yeah, pull those out of the, the garden and got to chop up everything and marble at our, our green thumb. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds, it sounds delicious. I'm it's great. It's that. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Great. So um, I want to just share with the audience again, your book, Lessons from Plants. Where can they find more information about the book and um, other important links to your work? Absolutely. So almost everything is um, on my website, barondamontgomery.com. I'm also on Twitter at Baronda M. If people are looking to purchase it online, I've been pointing people to bookshop.org because it supports a local bookstore. And I am a big local bookstore fan. Yes. I I wrote half of that in bookstore cafes uh, before the pandemic. And I know that bookstores have been struggling through this pandemic. So bookshop.org is a great place to buy my great. book or others. Yes. Fantastic. Great advice. Well, thank you so much, Peronda, for coming on the show. It was great speaking with you. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. And thank you for what you're doing with this platform. Thanks. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious, recorded on Skype during the, the COVID-19 isolation period. You can find this and all of our other episodes at foodiepharmacology.com or on YouTube at the Teach Ethnobotany channel under the Foodie Pharmacology playlist. Um, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts. And if you do go there, please leave us a five-star rating and maybe a comment or two. I'd really appreciate that. Thanks so much to our producers to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth at Co-Conspiracy Entertainment. And thanks so much to you, the listeners, for staying tuned. And I hope that you're all healthy out there, and I'll see you next time.